Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, Harvest. How are y'all doing this morning? Good. It's so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, as Gupreet said, my name is Eric, Pastor Eric. I, my family and I have been in Malaysia for about a month now, uh, so we are still pretty new here. Uh, and I thank God that he has brought me here to be one of the pastors of this church. Um, if we haven't met yet, please come say hello. I, I'm trying to get to know uh, all the people that, that the Lord has brought to Harvest, and I would, I would love to meet you. So don't be shy. Please, please come say hi. Now, uh, last week, we started back in a series looking in the book of Isaiah. And this week, we'll be looking at part of chapter 41. So if you'd like to go ahead and uh, turn to your Bibles or scroll through your phones to get there, you can do that now. Um, I must say that I was excited when I heard that we were going through the book of Isaiah as a church. Several years ago, I, I came across a survey by a Christian publishing company called Crossway, asking a series of questions related to how people read the Bible. And of the over 6,000 people surveyed, when asked, which section of the Bible do you read most often? And which do you find hardest to understand? You'll see the blue is read most often. So those blue bars on there, read most often. The red is the findest, find hardest to understand. You'll see, uh, if, you, if you look over here at the chart, the prophets are among the hardest to understand. It's not even close. People find the, the, the prophets, which Isaiah is part of, the hardest to understand. And you'll see it's among the least read. I wonder why. Why would you read something if you don't understand it? It's like, what do, what do I get out of this? What's the point of this? And so if you take up the task of reading Isaiah on your own, or even as you're just listening to it read, and you're thinking, what does this mean? What is this about? How does this fit into what God is doing? I want you to know that it's okay. You are experiencing something that many Bible readers have experienced. However, do not be resigned to stay in a place of not knowing. You see, the Bible is wonderfully complex, but it is not beyond our understanding. The Lord has gifted us with his spirit and also with his church, the body, his body, to work together in understanding and walking through the truth that he has revealed through his word. Meaning we need God? Of course we do. And we also need each other. To be a healthy theological community, we must be willing to ask questions. We must be willing to seek understanding. And we ought to do so with a posture that reflects the Spirit of God at work in us. One of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Have you ever prayed to God? God. I want to know you more. I want to hunger and thirst 
for your righteousness and for your kingdom come. Then continue to seek as you hear the word of God from Isaiah chapter 41. Starting in verse 1, it says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from it its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a, thresh, a threshing sledge, new sharp and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the one, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, 
the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Now, of course, we all understand this perfectly, right? We're all tracking. You're all with me. Just to give you some, some background about what is happening here, I want you to know that the book of Isaiah can be easily divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 39, which we covered earlier in the year, uh, and then chapters 40 through 66, which we've just begun a series in now. We're in week two. This is a natural breakpoint because there's a significant time gap and a significant change in circumstances for the audience of this, of this book. We've gone from being warned about God's judgment to being in God's judgment. Being warned to being in it. They're in it. The first 39 chapters are filled with words of judgment and hope. A prophetic voice is calling for God's people to repent and to turn back to the Lord. They need to come to their senses because rather than show their unfailing trust in the strength of God, they look to chariots and horses. Rather than show the goodness of God, they adopt the religious practices of the pagan nations around them. They are meant to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, but none of them have lived up to their duties. Not one. In fact, when Isaiah delivers the news of Israel's certain demise to Israel's king, King Hezekiah, that everything in his house will be carried off to Babylon, his response is, well, it's not great. He says to Isaiah at the end of chapter 39, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there'll be peace and security in my days. Now, we, we just sent off all the kids in this church, but just imagine corralling them back in here, setting them up here in the front, all of us looking at them in the face and saying, I am so glad that I won't have to live in the ruin that my generation has made for yours. Good luck. We would be beside ourselves, right? Like we would never do that. Are, are we in agreement that that would be bad? That would be wrong. We'd say like, no, let, let us experience the ruin first so that they don't have to. Hezekiah is saying, at least it's going to be good for me. Now in our text this morning, those younger generations, those are the ones who have been living in ruin as exiles. Once they were bursting with pride saying, we are the people of the Lord. Look at our storehouses. Look at our holy places. We are blessed. But now they have become a people stripped of their land. Storehouses empty. And it's no longer obvious that the Lord is with them at all. Do you think they were encouraged to worship God in the lands of Babylon? What do you think decades of discouragement and disillusionment would do to your faith in God? The beginning of Psalm 137 gives us an idea here of, of what, what they might be thinking. It says at the beginning, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept 
when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Do you hear the mockery? Do you sense the pain of God's people? You know, there's something identity shaping about singing God's praises among God's people. But what happens to us when we stop singing? When we feel like we don't have a song to sing anymore? I must say, I found it to be so powerful to know the stories of broken people, to know the pain they presently endure, and to then hear them cry out in song. Women who hold back tears from disappointment of a miscarriage as they sing of God's faithfulness to them. Those who have been displaced from their homes resolve to sing that our God saves. Singing is one practice that powerfully reinforces the realities of the gospel in our lives. It reminds us of who God is and also of our place before him. And when we remember who God is and are standing before him, we are comforted. We gain courage. But when you hear the weeping in Babylon, maybe now you can begin to understand the, the people's reluctance when the voice of the Lord comes saying, comfort, comfort my people at the opening of Isaiah chapter 40. They deeply believe the Lord has forgotten them. Or worse yet, he's no different from the other gods of the other nations. Either he's neglected them or he's too weak to help them. It's important to know this background as we look to understand what's happening in chapter 41, because there are historical events at play. Israel's been taken captive by a ruthless nation, but now another one's on the rise. The Persians are on the rise, and they're coming for Babylon. So God is asking us, how do you think world events come about? What do you think? Nations rise and fall. How? Is it by chance? Is it because some countries are more resourceful than others? Some governments are better run than others? Some gods are more powerful than others? What do you think? How does it happen? So the beginning of chapter 41, God invites the nations to a court hearing of sorts. He says in verse 1, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Now, we know from chapter 40 that the coastlands he's referring to is talking about the nations. God is calling the nations to quiet themselves in order to give ear to what he has to say. The collective accusation against the God of the universe, the God of the universe who created the cosmos, who created all things, is that he's just some national deity. That would be a step up for the so-called gods we elevate in our lives. But we're talking about the Lord of lords, the king of kings. So God responds to these accusations with the following arguments. 
First, he's trying to say that Israel's exile is not a product of divine neglect, but of divine judgment. And his judgment was right. Sometimes God's judgment means allowing people to experience the fuller weight of their sins. Sometimes God will let you go your own way. Sometimes he will let you experience the weight of of judgment on your sins. It is a divine mercy when we fall on our faces so that in our humiliation, we might turn back to the Lord. And you know what? He's just gracious enough to receive you. His second point, the rise of the Persians, the Persian army that's coming, is actually God's doing. God is involved. He's the one who's initiating this so that Israel can return home. He's raising up Cyrus. He's rescuing them. And this brings us to the central point of this whole chapter, which is that God is the king of history. God is the king of history. He controls all of it from beginning to end. And you know what? The king of history cares about the fate of sinful people like you and me. He is the one who is authoring our redemption. He's the one who's drawing us back to himself. The implication then is that God cares about what's going on in Kuala Lumpur. He does. He has given thought to you and to your present position in this world. You have not escaped his mind. You know, we're taught that we we need to think about God. We need to think about God a lot. And we do. We really do. But do you know that God thinks about you? That God cares for you? Verse 2 asks, Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? When it says to stir up there, it means that God, God is the one who initiates. Who stirred it up? He did. He's the one who's initiating these things. The one from the east is likely referring to the, the rise of King Cyrus and the Persians. We've said this, and, and, and it's, it's funny, he doesn't even give name here yet. He'll give name in, the, in a couple of chapters. He, he just referred to the one from the east. We're talking about a world power on the rise, the one from the east, right? This is what God thinks. The Lord is saying that he has set the affairs of the world in motion. From the beginning, he was the one who caused the first generation, and he will govern to the very last. And we're somewhere in between, right? Beginning and end. We're somewhere in the middle. He's still doing it. He is at work from beginning to end. Now, that doesn't mean the work of God's hands will always be obvious to us. And it doesn't mean that he will do things the way that we would. Sometimes people are resigned to, to think that God, God would never do such a thing. He, if, if he's really involved like that, why is the world like it is today? But you see, God, he's not like us. And what people really mean when they say that is, if I were God, I wouldn't do it this way. But we are sinners. 
Who are we to have perfect plans? And what is our own responsibility in this? And yet God accomplishes his plans to bless and not curse, even despite the ruin we make for ourselves. You see, God is not like us. God is infinite. We are finite. God sees things from beginning to end. We struggle at multitasking. God is orchestrating history toward fulfilling all of his redemptive purposes. I can't even remember what I had for dinner on Tuesday. No one needs to explain to God how to do anything. He doesn't ask Google. He doesn't look at YouTube or TikTok. He is the one who governs the history of our world. And when the nations are confronted with this reality, they tremble, they fear, they're terrified. Why? Because the Lord has stirred up a servant against them, a force that could reasonably overtake them. What what causes you to fear? What causes you to be afraid? I was looking this up. uh, What causes Malaysians to be afraid on the internet, right? I thought, you know, let's see, let's see what the internet has to say about this. Um, so I, I, I don't know if this is you or not. Uh, escalators, anyone? Escalators? We, we've had some close calls uh, with little kids, escalators, so I have a new appreciation for that. Um, maybe uh, crowded elevators? Anybody? Small enclosed spaces? Has anybody ever been stuck on an elevator? One, one person? I, I've been, I, I wish that on no one. It is a, uh, I, I think about it every time I get in an elevator now. Um, it's, it's real. Uh, how about heights? There's a lot of really tall buildings around here. And you just like look down at, out a window and you're like, wow, it's like going forever. I, you know, no? Okay. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's something more serious. Maybe it's losing your job. Not being able to provide losing a loved one, being rejected by your family, fear of the unknown. There's lots of things. There's lots of things we could fear. Whatever it may be, whatever it is for you, fear is powerful. It's powerful. I really believe that the world runs on fear. That's what's motivating most people. It's fear. Because fear confronts us with the reality that we don't hold our future. We can't even be certain about one moment to the next. And when faced with the presence of a reasonable threat, you will see people do whatever they can to grasp for control of what they cannot touch, what they cannot hold, what they cannot contain. When we are resigned to such fear, we will do whatever we can to take matters into our own hands rather than surrendering ourselves to the only one who holds our future. That's what the nations do in Isaiah 41. What's the alternative to coming before the Lord in faith? Idolatry. Idolatry. An idol is anything we devote ourselves to apart from God for a source of life, comfort, and hope. 
An idol is anything we devote ourselves to apart from God for a source of life, comfort, and hope. You see this in verses five through seven. In five through seven, the people are resolved. Their, their help comes from their own hands, which is why they turn to worship God's made in their own image. Verse six says, everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. They need to say that to each other. Where else would their help come from? And then they say of their craftsmanship, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails. It's talking about the idols that they're making. They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. This is their security. They think, look, we'll nail them down. Our gods will be stable. They won't fall over. Don't you see? The only source of comfort they can muster comes from themselves. It must be tiring work to make your own creator. Just think about that. That's what they do. And that is a sobering thought when real troubles arise. When real trouble comes, all you have is yourself. You know, usually you can tell the idols of a city by its most prominent structures. Its most prominent structures. For example, where I lived in the U.S., those structures represent the prominence of medicine and education. Those are the kings of the land of the city from where I come from. That's not to say those are bad places. They're not. They're incredibly important. But they're just like any other idol. They can't bear the weight of your burdens. And they can't rescue you from sin. So that's the nation's response. That's how they respond to fear. But God says to his people, you are to be set apart. You are to be different. You are to fear not. Which doesn't make sense because the reality is Israel is facing the exact same circumstances as everyone else. I mean, if they have been conquered by Babylon and the Persians are coming for Babylon, they're in Babylon guess what? They're getting conquered too, right? They're facing the exact same thing. He's saying, fear not. Well, what would give them reason not to fear? How do they do that? I'll tell you how. By remembering who God is and then remembering who they are. That's how. There's a line from a song that I love by, by this worship band called City of Light. We actually sing, the first song we sing this morning was by them. And, and, and the opening verses say this. It says, though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there's still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear for this truth remains that my God is the ancient of days. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. All of it. For his throne, it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. You see, everything that feels permanent to you right now is passing away. One day your child will grow up and leave. 
One day you will retire from your job. One day your house will be sold. One day your spouse will pass away. The only thing that is enduring until the end is in the hands of the one who sits on the throne. The king of history who melts away every fear. And if you really believe that, if you really start to believe that he is who he says he is, and that he cares about you in the way that he says he does, all those things that you start to feel anxious about, they really will start to melt away. Because you don't know what tomorrow holds, but you know who's holding your tomorrow. And so you can worry enough for today. You can focus on what this moment brings, and you can live for his glory. You can trust him in this. Now notice, we've talked a lot about what, who this king is, who this God is, but what does he have to say about us? What, is, what does he say about those that he rules over? What about his people? In verses 8 and 9, it says this, but you, Israel, my servant. You hear that? You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. You see, God doesn't just give us some empty words to encourage us. He starts by showing us who he is. He's the God who reigns over all of history. He knows our past and he holds our future. And then he reminds us of who we are. We are his servants. We are chosen by him. We are his friends. The God of the universe, the king of history. The the, the Hebrew word translated for friend in verse eight literally means my loved one. My friend, my loved one, you are loved by God. While you ran to choose other gods, the king of history said, I chose you. I loved you. I set my eyes on you. I chose to be gracious to you. And he has given us purpose as one's called to do his will. We serve him by sharing the news of his salvation in Christ to the ends of the earth, to the nations who need their fears silenced. He gives us his gospel. His gospel, that quiets all fears. The hostility that you fear will be removed, he says. The barriers that are impossible will be made possible. The wastelands you find yourself in will be like an abundant forest bursting with life. The land will be made new and the peoples will turn to the Lord. No one will believe that you did this yourselves. They will all know what the Lord has done. So why should we not fear? The king of history has told us. He says, because I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Where does our help come from? I, I, he's saying himself. It comes from our God. Brothers and sisters, we have come to know this righteous right hand that he speaks about as Jesus Christ. 
And in him, God has been immeasurably faithful to us. And so he says, fear not. This is what sets us apart from the rest of the world, that we have a real faith in the risen Jesus. In verse 14, God says, you worm, Jacob. Would you find comfort in being called a worm? He says, you worm, Jacob. This is endearing to you. God refers to his people as a worm, but he will make them into his very instrument to bring the nations near to him. The nations are not so far off that they can't come close. Because God, again, God is the great initiator. He's the one who draws near to us. And perhaps he's arousing you even now. He's stirring you up even now to move toward him in faith. You think, how, how could I do that? Maybe it's the fear of condemnation that still keeps you away from a holy God. How do sinful people draw near to him? Listen to this. Listen to this. On the cross, you with me? On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you, are you familiar with this? Are you familiar with Jesus? Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But did you know that he's quoting scripture when he says this? You know this. He's, he's quoting from Psalm 22, meaning in Jesus's great agony, circumstances as dark as they can be, he is uttering the words given to him by the Holy One of Israel. That's what's coming out of him. That's what gushes out of him is the word of God. We need the word of God in us like that. Listen to these words from the psalmist in Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Is this not the condition of sinful people? Doesn't this sound like Israel in their present estate in our text? He continues, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What incredible faith. He's not listening to himself. His life is not being dictated by his circumstances because his circumstances are pretty awful. But he's appealing to the God who controls history. He's recalling what God has done among real people in real time to bring real redemption. This is the kind of faith we are called to practice. Not to just do whatever we feel or be however we feel, but to practice remembering remembering who God is, remembering what he has done, remembering what he's promised, remembering what he's called us to be, what he, who he's called us to be, what he's called us to do, and where we're headed. Look at this. The next line in the psalm says this, but I am a worm and not a man. But I am a worm and not a man. This is the song that comes to Jesus' mind as he hangs on the cross. I am a worm and not a man. 
Look back at Isaiah 41, 14, and it says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Even Israel gets to be called men. It's like slightly better than worm. It's like a little step up. But the psalmist says, I am a worm and not a man. In other words, Jesus endures even greater humiliation. He goes even lower still. The so-called gods can't bear the weight of your burdens, but the Son of God can. The suffering servant can. By taking your place, he bears the weight for you. He lifts you up. You won't faint. You won't grow weary. Because he says, you are my chosen ones. My friends, fear not. In a book called Faith in the Wilderness, words of exhortation by the Chinese church, one of the authors makes this profound statement about Christian hope. He says, the Christian's hope lies in this. We are not stronger or purer than others. Instead, rather than believing in ourselves, we believe in Jesus, who upholds us when we fall, who comforts us when we give up, who strengthens us when our strength is drained, who loves us when we are in pain, who does not give us up even when we are hopeless about ourselves. Other gods may provide artificial hope, but only Jesus can bring the light of salvation in the midst of the wastelands. At the end of our, our passage that we read this morning, Isaiah says that when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. You see, even at our worst, even at our most desperate, the God who controls the universe, the king of history, has not abandoned you. He hasn't forgotten you. Far from it. Sometimes it's by walking through the wastelands of life that we are able to discover something more precious than life itself. Sometimes it's in the midst of the darkness that we realize we really have the light. That we really have the presence of God with us. And for this world to no longer fear, they need to encounter more of the presence of God. We are called to bear witness to that presence. Now, for those here who have not yet placed their trust in Jesus, let me tell you, your fears can end today. You can stop grasping for control and place your trust in Jesus the only one who can truly hold you. And so he, I want you to hear this. He says to you, my friend, my loved one, fear not. Let's pray. Holy Father, I believe that you, you've given us this word this morning, God, that we, we live in a world that's filled with fear. It's filled with Distrust, disillusionment, discouragement. But God, we, in, in the midst of all of this, as we're being tossed to and fro, we need some 
something stable. We need something sure. We need your word. We, we need your presence, God. We need your spirit in us. God, we pray that you would fill us up. Would you give us comfort? Give us the comfort that comes from knowing your son, Jesus, and that you can really do it. God, that you are with us. God, teach us not to fear, but to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.